father's coffin was being carried out of the church after his funeral service, I saw a bright light or a shimmering movement going up into the sky. At that moment, it felt to me like his soul was leaving his body and going up to heaven. Later, I thought it might have just been a trick of light. We'd come from a dark church into bright sunshine. Or maybe it was just the white robes of the choir who'd formed a guard of honour for him blowing in the wind. Or maybe again it was just wishful thinking. I wanted to believe that's what had happened. But whatever it was, it stayed with me and made me think about whether we do have a soul or a spirit that leaves our body when we die. Two-thirds of us believe we do have a soul. But how do we know and what difference might it make for how we die? That's our discussion today in Things Unseen, the programme for those of all faith and none who think there's more to life than the material world. I'm Alison Hilliard and I'm joined by Geeta Maheshwaran, a Hindu responsible for religious education at the Sri Ganapati Temple in London, by the Reverend Sue Clark, an Anglican priest and a medical doctor, and by Peter Fenwick, a neuropsychiatrist at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London and author of the book The Art of Dying. Peter, in your book you say that 68% of people believe in souls more than, say, they believe in God. So what has your research led you to believe about the idea of a soul? We've been looking at two different areas. One is near-death experiences and the other is end-of-life experiences and what happens after death. And we have a number of accounts of people who have seen shapes and forms leaving the body. Now, the people who see them, unlike you, are quite certain that they, in fact, are seeing a shape or form. You first of all see a shimmering light, like a, a mirage. Then you see a much more formed shape leaving the body. And then you see sparks in the form of a body. And then you sometimes see sort of flickering lights around the body. Now, all these make the people who see them totally convinced that something has left the body and it falls naturally into our understanding of the soul. And at what stage do you see these lights or sparks? Usually within an hour of death, sometimes it's closer to death than that. But we have to understand that not everybody in the room will see it. Even if they're looking at the body just after it's died, some will see this and some won't. So it's got to be a component of who you are and what you're feeling at that time. Sue Clark, if I can bring you in, have you seen anything that would confirm what Peter has been saying in patients that you have seen die or people whose funerals you have taken? I've never seen visible shape, light, uh, anything of that nature. I would observe, though, particularly with my medical hat on, that sitting with patients as they die, there is an awareness that for a period of time the body remains as though it were still in contact with life. And then after a period of time, it is as though something has gone. And that's a totally subjective observation. And I guess there is some truth in that because we can resuscitate the dead for a short period of time, depending on what has taken them. So there is a time when there is a, a transition in which death is not complete because we know we can bring that person 
back to life through medical intervention. How does that sit with you, Gita? Because in Hinduism, there's this clear belief that the soul discards the body at the end of life. The evidence of near-death experience sort of sits very well with Hinduism and the belief in the soul and the belief of the journey of the soul from the body, the discarding like a set of old clothes and carrying on its journey and then coming back for rebirth at a later stage. I mean, I've been at the bedside of people who are gradually fading away and the peace with which they approach that is quite a moving experience to be part of. So what exactly do Christians believe, or traditionally what have Christians believed, about what happens to the soul right at that time of death? I think there is no clear understanding or biblical basis for a defined belief. The soul or spirit leaves the body where it rests. Whether it rests, I think, is a subject of theological debate. The Bible tends to talk about people falling asleep. Many would say that the soul remains asleep until the time of resurrection, which is slightly different to the concept of the soul wandering around or having a a vitality of its own for a period of time until it comes back to another body to be reborn or whatever one's faith belief is. But is there the sense that the soul, once it leaves the body, is going on a journey and the journey it's going on is a one-way journey to judgment? It's a one-way journey to God. That's where it's going. I think judgment is is what happens, but the place it's going to is is to be with the Creator. The question for the Christian and the theological debate is, is this a a conscious journey? I use the soul conscious of the journey that they're on, or is there just a sense of falling asleep? And then the next sense, you're in that place of, of resurrection and judgment and God's presence. Which is a whole different issue if that's yes. the end point of the journey. Yes. And how does that sit with, with Hinduism, Gita? Hindus' approach to death is different because we feel it's just one of many that we are on. It's a cyclical journey. We came from the Creator and we are on a cyclical journey back to Him. And so death shouldn't be feared Death should be accepted as the one certainty in life. You were born and you will die and you don't know when you will die. So almost all the processes of spirituality within Hinduism is for that preparation for death and that you approach it without fear and that those around you, you having done whatever duties you had to do in your life, should approach it with that same attitude. Can we go back to that notion, Peter, of where the soul goes to once the person has died? And you talked about your research into to near-death experiences. And in your book, you say 10% of people who've had cardiac arrests have experienced near-death experiences. What do you conclude happens in a near-death experience? I'll come to near-death experiences in a moment because Sue said something really interesting. She said that people know when the body is empty. Now, we've actually done a study on this and asked people to say when the body was empty. And they're very clear. One moment there is something there, then another moment there isn't. So there is this knowledge that people have about something having left the body. Now, in answer to your question about the near-death experience, first of all, I have a wide experience on near-death experiences because I've spoken to many people who have 
uh, had near-death experiences. There's a huge scientific controversy about it, but you needn't bother about the scientific controversy because you can ask a simple question. How is the brain during a near-death experience? Well, if people tell you they were unconscious or something. You don't know what that means. But if you look at those with cardiac arrest, you know exactly what their brains were doing. They were non-functional. So during that time, 10% of people, why not all? We don't know. It may be something to do with memory. But 10% of people will have a near-death experience. And tell me what are the characteristics of a near-death experience? We'll take the cardiac arrest ones because they're really good. A third of people who have a near-death experience during cardiac arrest will, in fact, have a veridical experience. They'll go up to the corner of the room, they'll look back and watch the resuscitation. Then the near-death experience starts, and you will go down a tunnel towards the light. You'll meet the being of light and maybe have a conversation with him. And the being of light is all love compassion and warmth and understanding, then you'll go into a sort of heavenly-like place where you may meet dead relatives and spiritual figures. Now, the interesting thing is that some people, those who are going furthest, in fact, will proceed beyond that, but their form changes. It's no longer the sort of strict form that you and I have here, it's bodies and so on. It becomes much more energy. And these energy bodies will then go into, have a different set of experiences, much wider. And the ones that we've had that have gone furthest, the energy body comes very close to fusing with universal consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously what we have to aim at. And in all cases, it's a positive experience? No. In our series, 4% of people had negative experiences. Now, I've spoken to a number of people with negative experiences, and I've formulated this way. A lot of these people are quite ill who have negative experiences. And a lot of the experiences fall into the group of people who have intensive care psychoses. You make a distinction then between the positive and the negative experience. But at the end of the day, apart from making that distinction, what proof can you actually come up with that would answer the sceptics who would say that at the end of the day you can't prove this scientifically? You can actually prove bits of it scientifically. When I said they left their body and watched the resuscitation process, that's testable. It's like this. If you're up on the ceiling and watching the resuscitation process, what you see is different from what we see here. For example, if you see an object, you see its top, its bottom, its underneath, all together. Not only that, you can see what's going on in other rooms, and you can hear what's going on in other rooms. So you have remote vision and vision here. Now, if you take this quite formally, then it would suggest that the process of seeing, and this has been described by a man called David Rousseau, he argues for a five-dimensional structure in the cell. And he argues for the material world and a mental component to the world, and that is five-dimensional. And he argues that this is the cell. So that you can show scientifically. For the rest, they're very deep experiences. They produce huge changes in the people who have them. So you would argue that they're having a very special set of experiences which produces change. Can I bring you and Sue here with your medical hat on? Because I suppose the traditional line would be that you can't be conscious if your brain isn't working. 
Well, there have been imaging studies to show that people who are dying and indeed who have arrested do have brain function, but in very specific centres in the brain. And, and one of the hypotheses to explain the, the near-death experiences is that it's, it is a part of the brain with audiovisual functionality that is still firing and therefore these are images that one's seeing because one's brain is, if you like, misbehaving and sending false images. So that would be a scientific explanation or a potential scientific explanation. And there is some evidence to suggest that the people that have such experiences have the same area of the brain affected, sort of in the temporal cortical area and the visual cortex. The strange thing for us when I've read about near-death experience is that it broadly follows a very similar pattern and the experience is noetic. It's life-changing for many who come back and it's one that has very little fear in it. They are transformed. And what would um, the experience say to you as a Hindu? Would it chime with your thoughts? It very much would because it is that soul's progression from leaving those who are alive. Even the floating above the operating theatre, we get a similar process through meditation. Just a very short touch with the ultimate reality, which chimes very well with the near-death experience. But I suppose it's the problem here that science by its very nature, can't cope with the subjective experience. Yes, that's absolutely true. And this comes from Galileo. Because what he said, primary qualities, weight, size, speed, secondary qualities, redness, smells, etc. And he said redness and smells are not for science. Mm -hmm. But I must just answer Sue, because what she was saying is that there's evidence that if you are in a coma and close to death, then you can have experiences. That's absolutely true. And uh, she also mentioned that there are parts of the brain which are functioning during that time, and that would allow you to argue that these may be active in the near-death experience. That's why we choose cardiac arrest. Within 11 to 17 seconds, the cortex, that part of the brain which generates any experience, is gone. There is absolutely no bit of the brain which can, in fact, function. So it's a real problem for science. So how can you have these experiences when those analytical structures in the brain are not functioning? So we have to improve our science somehow. And I suppose when we talk about improving your science, I've been very struck by reading of experiments that were done at an earlier age of actually trying to prove the existence of the soul by trying to weigh it, for example. <laughs> it's a lovely one, that. <laughs> I don't think that there is really much evidence that that you can do that because you're talking about a gram or something and trying to have somebody on a scale as they're dying and show that you get this change is almost impossible. But then I suppose everybody's got their own theory. I was reading of one scientist last year who stirred up a whole controversy by saying that near-death experiences occur when, when quantum substances which form the soul, when they, then they leave the nervous system and they enter the universe. Now, I suppose, to be truthful, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sounds quite radical. I think it's a scientist trying to explain the inexplicable, really, and to put scientific words for that which we have no true understanding and I think we have to be careful when we start to, to do that. I, I agree with Sue, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's quantum allegory, isn't yes. it, Sue? And we're, we're making put, pictures. And we're put, trying to put physical boundaries on something that transcends 
that aspect. But might it not sit quite nicely with Hindu philosophy? Because in some senses, I suppose the idea that the person was getting at was that our souls are, are constructed from the very fabric of the universe. And, and very much it tallies with what Peter was saying about those who've gone furthest and have found almost emerging with that cosmic potential or reality, which sits perfectly with what the Hindu viewpoint on the soul is, that we are part of that cosmic reality and at the end we go straight back to that cosmic reality as well. And that's not dissimilar from the Christian faith yes. in the sense of a creator God who breathes in the breath of life mm. and one can see the soul as being that breath of life and then... In death, the breath of life leaves. But for us, the soul is part of that that God. Yes. In the sense of it came from him or her or it and goes back to that. So ultimately, we would actually say that our soul is God and what we have surrounding it is the body, which is not taken when when that soul carries on its journey. A fine difference, mm -hmm. but I think it's perhaps semantics in some senses because I think the Christian would believe that they come from the creator. Sure. And in that sense, the picture is similar. The difference is, I think, that the Christian would say that each individual is an individual yes. and therefore has an individual identity, which is precious yes. and given to them by the Creator. And the aim of the Christian life is to become fully that for which we were created to be. The Hindu perspective would be that we are part of a greater reality, which links us not only to humanity, but also to all of the living creatures. So our ideas on conservation and um, treatment of animals and all aspects of, of life should be taken with that thought in mind that we are all linked and that we are all part of a higher universality. Would you find that a helpful take or a helpful perspective, Peter, which takes you beyond the research and beyond the, the narrative of what people who've had the experiences you describe? I think it's very helpful. It depends what framework one's coming from. If one's coming from a scientific framework, then of course, as you've already said, because it's personal experience, there are very definite limits to it. But in terms of the way that you want to construct a pattern of the universe and the relationship of consciousness to the universe, then, then these stories are all lovely. Well, apart from being lovely, though, what have they led you to conclude? I'd quote Penfield. Penfield is a surgeon in Canada who had his electrodes in the brain before anybody else did and has got a very, very good idea of the functioning of the brain at that level. And he says, in his view, there are two structures. There's the brain... And there is something else which is mind, and mind and brain are not the same. And although they may move together, they don't have to. And that's why we took the cardiac arrest one. So we can say, if you take brain out of the equation, what happens? And if you take brain out of the equation, then you have this structure which seems to go on. So what does that leave you thinking about your own soul? My own soul. Oh, I'm really happy with my soul because I've spoken to far too many people with near-death experiences to think that it's going to be the end and I'll be eclipsed. No, no, I'll have a nice near-death experience. And what's more, there's a lovely one in the literature. He was from an American, Mellon Benedict Thomas, typical American. As he died, he had electrodes on his chest, so he knew his heart had stopped and it stopped for eight hours. He went down the tunnel, saw the light, and then being American said, hey, light, stop. I want to understand about the universe. Please, can you tell me what all this is about? 
I think we have to remember this, actually. When we die, Haylight, tell me what it's all about. And he was given a tour of the universe. He described it very nice, and it's worth looking up what he says. And then he came back again, and his cancer was cured. And he's still alive today. And you can find him on the net. That's a lovely story. I just look forward to your own experience and you coming back to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go sometime. <laughs> and you might as well back. go embracing it and enjoying it. Uh, yes, embrace and enjoy. I think this is and it. would that be your vision, Gita? Embrace and enjoy and that's what and where your soul will go. My aim would be that I, I go quickly and peacefully, having done my duty on this earth so that my family are well, not happy to see me go, but you know, we'll, we'll go without that feeling of regret that things have not been said and things have not been done. So that's the way that I would want to live my life and that's the way I would love to go, embracing and enjoying. What about Sue? I dare you to say something different. <laughs> <laughs> I think the challenge for us is to be talking about death in life and I think the sadness is that we have stopped talking about death because many don't have a faith and therefore there is that whole sense of nothingness that looms beyond and that makes life very scary and makes death even scarier so we don't talk about the things that we're frightened about and I guess as a person of faith I would hope that we might encourage one another to explore what has become a forbidden area. Gita? Yes, in our scriptures I always come back to the quote, I'm probably misquoting it terribly, but the Lord of Death asks, who is a wise man and who is a foolish man? And the prince answers, the foolish man is the one who lives his life as if he will never die, and the wise man is the one who lives his life knowing that he will. And that is the thing that keeps on reverberating round that we have to accept that it will come, that we shouldn't uh, face it with fear, and we should live our life preparing for that moment because we don't know when it will come. Can I just finally then, Peter, go back to my story at the beginning of what I saw from my father's coffin, which I believed was his spirit going up to heaven. Do you think that was his spirit or his soul? The data would point in that direction. Shapes seen leaving the body are not uncommon. They occur everywhere. For example, we have somebody who was hit by a piece of farming equipment when he was woodcutting, and the person saw him it was quite clear that he was dead, saw him dead on the ground and was watching him. And then he saw this shape come up. We have another one of somebody on the golf course to cardiac arrest, and there was a GP who rushed over. And on the way to it, saw the shape arise from it. So they're clearly there, and so we'll need to understand those. Well, with that very comforting and uplifting thought, thank you all very much indeed for joining us. Thank you to my guests today, Peter Fenwick, Geetha Mashwaran and the Reverend Sue Clark. I'm Alison Hilliard and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who want to grapple with the big questions of life. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.